All right. Before we start on verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2, I want you to notice the very last verse in this chapter. Look what it says. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, that's an important verse right here because one of the things that you often hear when you're talking about end times and whenever people are discussing you know, what this applies to, is this applying to Israel or the church, You'll hear the common statement, well, you know, not all Bible is written, you know, all the Bible is written for you, but not all the Bible is written to you, right? And I actually agree with that statement. I, you know, but at the same time, I don't always agree with how people will then uh, interpret the scriptures after that. And so right here we have another example of a very specific chapter written to specific churches. Okay, we see that Jesus is writing to the seven churches. We're going to cover four of them in this passage. And these are, I believe, literal churches that he's talking to. But at the same time, there are things in here that's for us. This wasn't just for them during that time. And I think proof of that is just because at the end of this chapter, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now the question is, who's that talking to? I believe that's talking specifically to save people. And notice that phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear. That statement was often used after Jesus spoke parables, wasn't it? Over and over again, when Jesus would speak parables, he would often say, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. That's exactly what he said in Matthew 11, verse 13. He says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Why did Jesus speak that way? Because of the fact He was often speaking to a mixed crowd of believers and unbelievers. And the disciples one time asked, you know, why do you speak in parables? You know, and He said, you know, it is, it's not given to everyone to know you know, the secrets and the things of the Kingdom of God. It was for certain people. It was for saved people. So I personally believe that when we look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it would be very easy for different people to read this chapter and come to very different conclusions. Because of the simple fact, what's written, what we're supposed to get, is something that the Spirit is saying. Well, is a lost person going to get that? Absolutely not. So what people often do with chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to avoid doing this tonight, because I'm just going to be honest, there's some things that are mentioned in chapter 2, I don't know for sure what it's talking about. And so people often go to extra-biblical sources to find out what it's talking about, and then they build their doctrine around that. And I think that's very dangerous. And so uh, I want us to, I want us to uh, find out tonight, and I want us to see how we're supposed to interpret chapters 2 and 3 and what we're supposed to get from it. So let's start reading in verse 1. It says, "...unto the angel..." of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So last week we saw that the seven candlesticks were the seven churches. John saw Jesus. He saw the candlesticks. He saw the stars. And we talked about the seven stars are the seven angels. And I had mentioned how I believe the angels are referring to the pastors or the messengers of that church. And I think strong evidence of that is this verse right here because this letter is written to the angel. He says, under the angel of the church of Ephesus. Right. 
So I don't think God's asking John to write a letter to go give to an angelic being. I think he's writing a letter that he can go give to the pastor so the pastor can get up and he can read it to the church so the people will know his sin. So I think this is strong evidence that the angel here is the pastor. And it's interesting too because notice how it mentions Jesus has the seven stars in his right hand. Okay? Now that's something to think about too because I personally believe, you know, that Jesus Christ, of course, is the head of the church. He is the chief shepherd, but a pastor and a shepherd are the same thing too, aren't they? But understand, the Bible says we are not lords over God's heritage, but in samples to the flock. And I believe if a pastor gets out of line, I believe God will deal with them. I think one of the mistakes people often make, <clears throat> you know, you always get these deacon boards and these committees that want to just kind of run the church and run the pastor. You know what? If your church is a biblical church, I believe you know the pastor, he's in the right hand of Christ. And if he gets out of line, God will deal with him. I, I really do believe that. And that's another message for another day. But ultimately, it is all about Jesus Christ. And so we should remember our place in the church. Let God deal with the pastor. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. So this, this church here is a very good church in many ways. I believe this church, if we were to go visit it, if we could go back and visit it, we would be impressed with this church. I don't think we'd be able to find anything wrong with it. I think we would see them doing a lot of good things because notice what he commends them for. He mentions their works and their labor. So this is a church that's doing the works. I mean, this is a church that's active. This is a church... That is being, I believe they're being obedient to the scripture. And also he mentions their patience. And I'm not going to get too deep in this. This will come in a later week, but patience is, I mentioned this last week too. It's often a reference to how we deal with tribulation. And so he's commending them for their patience. I believe he's just commending them for enduring persecution is why he mentions this. He, um, he also says, um, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And ha thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. You know, we ought to have a strong intolerance for evil. Okay? He said, you cannot, thou canst not bear them that are evil. You know what this church did? This church had a problem with evil. That's a good thing. Now, we're often told when we're intolerant to evil that we're judgmental and we're not very Christ-like. But Jesus said, Jesus commended them for their lack of tolerance for evil. And that's exactly how we should be. And so, He commended them for that. They also were good at spotting false prophets. He said, you've tried them which say they are apostles and you found them to be liars. Now, how did they do this? Okay, the Scriptures. They obviously knew their Bibles. This was a church that knew their doctrine. They knew the Scriptures. So, when somebody came along saying, I'm an apostle. I'm a man of God. Listen to what I have to say. They listen to what he had to say. They do like the Bereans and they search the Scriptures. And when these people were saying things contrary to the Word of God, you know what they did? They rejected them. And they put them out of the congregation. And we ought to be the same way. We don't want to be compromising and associating with false prophets, people spreading a false gospel. 
So <clears throat> they kept busy. These were people that were keeping busy for Christ, and he, he does. He commends them for their works. He says, "You've labored and not fainted." And so, and he mentions patience again in here too. And I believe this patience is referring to just being steady, just being consistent, just enduring, not giving up. And it is. It's real easy sometimes to just get bogged down with life and just to get tired and just want to give up. But that's why the Bible constantly tells us, hey, we'll reap if we faint not. Sometimes we're going to feel like fainting, but this church didn't do it. They just kept going. They were going to, they were keep it on, keep it on. But then he gets to the part where he's got a rebuke for them. They were missing something. They had something wrong. And that is, says, nevertheless I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. So he's telling them here, he's wanting them to repent of leaving their first love. Now what was that first love? Well, I believe it was just that. They've left their first love because notice he said he commended them for their works, didn't he? This church is doing the work. They're doing the physical things that you're supposed to do. But notice how it says they've left their first love. You know, it's possible for us to be, do the right things but just be going through the motions. It's possible for us to do the right thing with kind of the wrong attitude. And the truth is, we ought to be motivated by our love for God, shouldn't we? And think about this. So he's commending them for their works. But turn over to Mark chapter 12. In verse 28, look what it says over there. It says, One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. So we see that the first commandment, the great commandment, is to love the Lord. Well, if a person is not loving the Lord, then they're breaking the first and the greatest commandment, aren't they? And is that not why God wants us doing the things that we do? Do we really think that we're making a holy God that's in heaven who is surrounded by angels and seraphims and cherubims? Do we really think that our works impress God? No, they do not. That's why our salvation is not based on our works. And we often tell people this when we're soul winning, hey, salvation is not based on our works. Do we really think we are impressing a holy God with our church attendance? Maybe we dress up a little bit. Do we really think that impresses a holy God? But you know what? The Bible teaches what pleases God is our faith. We see that God is pleased when we love Him. And one of the things that I often do, I often tell people, you know, to prove to them that salvation is something that is free and that you cannot lose, is I'll tell them if salvation could be lost if we don't do the works, then why would we do the works? We would do the works because we love ourselves. We would do the works because we don't want to go to hell. If I had to go to church to go to heaven, I would go to church because I love myself. But if salvation is completely free and I can be saved and go to heaven without going to church and then I still go to church, 
That means I'm doing it because I love God. And what we do ought to be motivated by our love for God. But sometimes we do it for the wrong reasons. We do it because we want to impress everybody else. We do it just because it's tradition. God wants to do things out of love. And I believe this church quit loving God. They were doing things right, but they were doing it for the wrong reasons. And so, I think he's talking about the first and the great commandment here. And so, you know, a lot of people think, well, it's talking about soul winning. They had quit the soul winning. Well, that could be. But the thing is, he commended their works. If they weren't doing the soul winning, why would he commend their works? You know, and it mentions you left your first love. But then you could say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Therefore, you know, they obviously forgot that one. And you know what? If you do love God, you're going to do that. But I believe you can go soul winning and not love God. I think you can go soul winning just because it's expected. Just because you have to. You know, there's people that do even soul winning for the wrong reasons. And I believe God wants us to do things out of love for Him. So, notice what He says. So, He tells this church, you know, He um, he mentions that, you know, if they didn't... Um, he, or he said, you know, he said, I'm going to come quickly. He said, if they don't repent and do the first works, he's going to come quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So I personally believe that if we do, if we forget that, if we leave that, God's going to take away can, the candlestick out of the church. And you know what? What's going to happen when that takes place? And I believe this is happening all the time, where candlesticks are being removed. So in other words, God's not there anymore. All right? The Holy Spirit is not helping that church anymore. So you know what that does? That causes us now to come up with counterfeits. I don't believe it means the church shuts down. I believe there are many churches that have had their candlesticks removed, but yet they're still operating. There's The people are there. I mean, they might even have a full house. But the truth is, these churches always have counterfeits. In there, for example, you know they'll have counterfeit Bibles, counterfeit music. They got to start bringing in the rock bands and everything to entertain the people. They have these fake movings of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Baptist churches all the time, where because God is not there, because God's not doing anything in that church, they have to manufacture things and they'll bring in some entertaining, you know, circus preacher. Who knows how to get the crowd all hyped up? And he thinks because he gets people laughing and crying and running and all that stuff, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit moved. That's not what we see in the Bible. That's not how it looked when the Holy Spirit moved in the Bible. So when you see that kind of stuff going on in church, just mark it down, their candlestick has been removed. And that's a whole other sermon for another day. We could talk a lot about that. But look at verse 6. And so he mentions another good thing about it. He says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There are some things we should hate. Okay? So, what, is the, what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Well, I don't know for sure. All right? And there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of history that you can look at. I, I'm not going to use that. I don't want to really use any of those sources. I've got opinions and things like that. But, I, here's what I think we need to get from it. Here's what the Spirit is saying unto the churches. You know what? There's other groups out there that have other ways that teach other things. And you know what? God doesn't want us joining up with it. You know, I think this is a good reminder here that the ecumenical movement is bad. 
and God's people should have no part in it. We should not join up with those teaching false doctrine. And I and so God commended them because they hated their deeds. And so verse seven says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, I probably need to preach a whole message on this subject to back up a claim that I want to make about, about what we see here. But first, turn over to 1 John chapter 5. One thing we see over and over again when we go to each of the churches, Jesus mentions, to him that overcometh these things, if you'll overcome this, I'll do this. And people often read these and say, well, what if I don't overcome? What if I don't do that? Well, I lose my salvation. And people use this to prove that in the end times, you will, a, a believer will be able to lose their salvation. I absolutely reject that. I don't believe anybody ever has lost their salvation. And nor will anybody ever lose their salvation. But let me show you something in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth Him that begat, loveth Him also that is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Okay? If you're born of God, it says you'll overcome the world. Alright, so what do I have to do? You know, what will I do in the future? You know, what's going to happen when the mark of the beast comes? Am I going to take it or am I not going to take it? What am I going to do? What is, look what it says right here. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? Right there we see those who overcome the world are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not what we teach for salvation? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Not do the works. Not endure to the end. Not overcome this and overcome that. The Bible says if we believe on Christ, we overcome the world by our faith. Okay? But right, you say, well, it says very specific things here that you have to overcome in order to you know, inherit this or inherit that. Listen, I believe at the end of the day, if you're saved, we will do these things. I believe if, if you're saved, why? Because the things that we overcome, the, the, the works of salvation are not our works, are they? They're the works of Jesus Christ. And I personally believe if there is anything just physically that we just, you know, that automatically means hell, the Holy Spirit's going to keep us from those things. He's going to keep us from the evil. He will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. At the end of the day, I believe I will overcome through Jesus Christ. And you know what? I'm not worried about what I'm going to do in the future. Okay? And you say, well, what if? Well, what if God lies tomorrow? The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. That's just, a, it's a stupid question. You know what? Let's just keep trusting Christ. You know, don't worry about all this stuff and, you know, what, what if this happens? What if that happens? Just trust Christ. And I believe you will be an overcomer. And I believe ultimately at the end of the day, even when we mess up, 
We are still overcomers. Why? Because we overcome through the work of Jesus Christ, not our own works. So I personally believe every saved person is an overcomer. And I believe we will overcome all these things. And even if you don't, all right, you know, even if Brother Lonnie, we see him mess up in one of these things, I believe he's an overcomer if his faith is in Jesus Christ. Because we get credited with his righteousness, not our righteousness. When I stand before God, I'm not going to be judged according to my works. I'm going to be judged according to his works. So don't let those things scare you, all right? We ought to try to do these things. We ought to try to practice them. I believe there's a blessing if we actually do them. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's anything in here that says if we don't do these things, we lose our salvation. I think that's a massive, massive stretch and a massive leap that just doesn't even make sense. So, um, you know, I will be an overcomer, not because of me and my works, but because of my faith in Christ. I believed on Christ. And so while I'm not 100% sure about what is to come, and I'm not 100% sure about what I will do in the future, I am 100% sure that Jesus Christ is going to get me through it. And anywhere where I fall short, He makes up the difference. So when I say I believe that a saved person will have the works, I'm not saying I myself personally will do all these things. I'm saying... I will be credited for these things because of imputed righteousness. Alright? So I hope that's clear. And I hope I hope I got that across good. If you have more questions about it, see me afterwards. And maybe I will preach a whole message on this. Because I, I think I probably should just kind of back up some of these claims I'm, uh, that I'm going to be making. <clears throat> but look at verse 8. So verse 8 says, Now we're to the church in Smyrna. And then the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things say the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So right, notice how Jesus, right here, He mentioned their tribulation and their poverty right before He mentions the synagogue of Satan. Alright? Notice that. So, why did He do that? Alright? Well, first off, once again, and I'm, we're going to see several examples of this. People try to act like the tribulation has nothing to do with believers. Yet, even in the book of Revelation, he's talking about their tribulation that they're going through. He mentions some that will have tribulation. And, but notice, he mentions their tribulation and their poverty, but then he adds, but thou art rich. Unlike the church in Laodicea, who thought they had everything and Jesus said they were poor. You know, so... But why did Jesus mention this? Why did these things get mentioned together? The synagogue of Satan and their tribulation and poverty. I'll tell you why. Because the synagogue of Satan has been the one that's been persecuting the church since the beginning of time. In the early church, it was the synagogue of Satan that were, was persecuting the church. Look what it says in 1 Thessalonians 2.14. <clears throat> you say, who is the synagogue of Satan? Alright? It is those who cast off their first faith. It was those who were Jews who were a part of the true religion. But then when the Messiah came, they did not continue in their faith. What did these people do? They rejected their faith. They rejected the Messiah. <clears throat> they tried to hang on to these old traditions 
And they, they rejected the Messiah and they ended up basically starting a false and phony religion. A blasphemous religion. One who said that they worshipped Jehovah God. One who said they were doing the sacrifices and doing all these things that Jesus Christ had finished. And the truth is, what they were doing was blasphemy. And the Jewish religion, after the time of Christ, it became a blasphemous religion that Jesus called the synagogue of Satan. That's what the Bible says. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, and this group persecuted the true believers. They persecuted them. It says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews." who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. So much for being the apple of His eye, as people are trying to say today. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. So we see it was always the Jews standing against the church. In Romans 11.28, it says it's concerning the Gospel they are enemies. Okay? But just because somebody has Jewish descent, it doesn't make them a bad person because he says, but it's touching the election. They are beloved for the Father's sake. They're saved Jews. There are people who are of Jewish descent that are believers in Christ. There were Jews during Paul's day who continued on in their faith and they accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Those people were not bad. They were not rejected just because of where they came from. No, those who were believers, they were beloved for the Father's sake. But they persecuted their own physical kin for staying loyal to their religion and not going along with their apostasy and rejecting the Messiah. And so they were. They were the synagogue of Satan. Titus chapter 1 and verse 10 says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Once again, talking about the Jews. They were always standing up against they were always standing up against the believers. Turn over to Isaiah chapter sixty. Isaiah chapter sixty. It says Says the sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee, and they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. And you say, well that right there, he's talking to Israel. Yes, he's talking to believing Israel then, and we don't have time to go into it, but Galatians chapter 3 and 4, it proves that the Jews, the Bible credits them with Ishmael. Why? Because Ishmael persecuted Isaac and the Jews persecuted the church. And so the Bible calls us the children of Isaac, or we're the children of promise like Isaac, and it calls the Jews those of Ishmael. Why? Because they persecuted the church. And here in Isaiah chapter 60, talking to believing Israel, he says the children of them who afflicted you 
are going to come and they are going to bow at the soles of your feet. Now that's interesting because in uh, Revelation chapter 3, it also mentions the synagogue of Satan. It says in verse 9 of Revelation 3, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. The same thing that God told Israel, God, Jesus tells the church right here, saying, I'm going to make this, them of the synagogue of Satan to come and bow before thy feet and know that I have loved thee. Why is that? Because it's the Jews that have been saying that we're illegitimate for 2,000 years. They've been saying that God doesn't love us, that God loves them. That they are the chosen people. That they are the apple of God's eye. And they have, they've, they've persecuted us for 2,000 years. And right here, Jesus says, I'm going to make them to come and they're going to bow before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. That's what it's talking about right there. And so the synagogue of Satan, they are still thriving today. They are still around today, causing trouble. And that, that is what they have always done. Modern day Judaism is the synagogue of Satan. In the Olivet Discourse, it's clear that it's going to be the Jews that are going to be sending us to prison. Look what it says in Matthew 24 and verse 19. Or verse 9. Look, it says, then, they, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. So right there, it's talking about they refer, he's referring to the Jews. It says in Mark 13, verse 9 specifically, in the same parallel passage, it says, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues, and ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. So we see this is going to be happening in the synagogues. So even in the last days, just like it was the Jews in the beginning persecuting the church, it's going to be them doing it again in the tribulation. It's going to be the Jews that are doing this. Why? They are the synagogue of Satan. And we shouldn't call them Jews because the Bible says, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. And we've been, I, I, I keep saying I'm going to quit doing it. I'm going to quit calling them that. Because the Bible says they're not. Every time you say they are, you're going against Scripture. And the Bible says they are not, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. It's an inward thing. It's that of the heart. And the Bible calls them the synagogue of Satan. And so, um, and you know, and we, we could go on and on with examples of just how it was the Jews persecuting that. And how Jesus said this is going to happen in the synagogues. And you know what? It's going to be the synagogue of Satan that's persecuting us in those last times when it all starts going down. So look what it says in verse 10. It says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Okay? So, we see in Matthew 24, Jesus is saying it's the Jews that are going to be doing this. They're going to be doing it in the synagogues. In Revelation, we see it's going to be Satan that's going to be doing it. Why? Because the synagogue of Satan is in control of the devil. Okay, That is who is the head of that. I've listened to Baptist preachers say that we serve the same God as the Jews. 
Well, that might be true for them. And if it is, they're serving Satan. Okay? We see that if they don't have the Son, they don't have the Father. That's what Jesus said. And the Bible calls them the synagogue of Satan. So we see too how He mentions here to this church that they will have tribulation ten days. And what does that mean? And once again, we've got to be careful. Some things, it might have just, that might be something specifically that was going to happen to that church. And I'm not going to go and try to spiritualize it and all that. But once again, he mentioned to the church you're going to have tribulation. Now, I just got rebuked this week. Somebody told me I wasn't saved because I have a different belief on end times. Alright? And that's fine. That happens quite a bit. And they were talking about how the tribulation is the wrath of God. Well, then explain, you know, we are not appointed under wrath. Well, then if, if tribulation is the wrath of God, can somebody explain to me how this church got under the wrath of God for 10 days? Because he said you'll have tribulation 10 days. Tribulation and the wrath of God are not the same thing. Okay? But for some reason, I'm going to show you how people often do double talk when it comes to tribulation. You know, you say, well, tribulation is the wrath of God. So what about the tribulation right here which says you should have tribulation 10 days? Well, that's not talking about the wrath of God. You know, and they, they, they go back and forth. And I'll show you more examples of that here in a minute. You know, the 10 days could just mean something specific for that church. I don't know. So, verse 11 says, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So, once again, we will overcome through our faith in Jesus Christ. It says in Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ shall reign with them a thousand years. So how do we be, take part in the first resurrection? By being saved. Alright, if you're saved, you will have part in that first resurrection. And I believe the way we overcome, once again, is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, not gonna, not gonna go into that too deep, but look at verse 12. Verse, uh, 12, Revelation chapter 2. It says, Now the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Okay? Now, once again, people often go to books and use extra biblical things to, you know, tell us about Satan's seat, right? where Satan's seat is. Okay, I'm not going to, you know, it, and right here it mentions it being in Pergamos. Well, what does that mean? And I'm just giving you my opinion right here, but I think this is actual Bible based opinion, not a historical based opinion. But it mentions Satan's seat was in Pergamos. Is Satan's seat still in Pergamos today? I personally don't think it is today, but I do believe it was then. Now, I have no historical evidence to back up what I'm about to say, but one thing I do know is when Revelation was written, Jerusalem had been destroyed, correct? I mean, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. It was wiped out. God made Jerusalem like a plowed field. You couldn't even tell it had been inhabited. That's what the Bible said was going to happen. And that's what history says happened. History backs up that claim. So what does it mean where Satan dwelleth? Well, if the synagogue of Satan 
is the false religion of Judaism, I personally believe this was probably a place of very strong Jewish influence during that time. Because the Jews, they ran other places. They call it the dysphoria, where they got spread out all over all the world. So I don't know, maybe this was a prominent place with strong you know, Jew. Maybe this is where the Jewish leadership went to. I don't know that for sure, but it would just make sense that if the synagogue of Satan was the false religion of Judaism, that maybe their headquarters would have been in Pergamos. I don't know. That's just that's just my opinion. Because it probably would have been Jerusalem before, but it had been destroyed. So I think they probably moved there to Pergamos. I don't I don't know that for sure. But they were obviously this church was in a place where there was a lot of wickedness. And it says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So this church had clearly compromised. They had gotten involved with some wicked religions. It says, So then thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. So unlike this church hating that doctrine and hating the deeds, they had people that were holding it in their church. And he says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So this church, I personally believe this church was in danger of not having any saved people in it. And I believe that happens in many false religions or many religions that have compromised, churches that have compromised. Eventually, if that church does not repent, it's only a matter of time before there's no saved people in that church. And I do. I believe there's churches out there that are pretty bad, that have a lot of bad doctrine, but I believe there's saved people in those churches. But here's the thing. If that church does not repent of their false doctrine, it's only a matter of time and there will not be any saved people in that church. And if Jesus Christ were to return, nobody's getting pulled out of that church because there will not be any saved people left. And I believe that's where this church was real, it was real close to getting to that point. So it says in verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. And so, you know, we can only speculate what that's all about when it comes to that stone. I just personally take it literally. I believe that when we get to heaven, when we stand before Jesus in Judgment Day, He's going to give us a white stone that's going to have a name written on it that only He knows. And, that, and then we will know when we see it. And what that means, the significance of that, once again, it's all speculation, and I don't have time for a whole lot of speculation tonight. But um, you know, we, we, that's one of those things we can talk about after church. You know, I don't want to. We just I don't have time to go into a lot of my thoughts on that. But the church in Thyatira, verse eighteen, on the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. And the last be more than the first. All right. Now, if you all can help me with this, this is just something I can't really figure out. All right. I hate to admit there's something I don't understand. He mentions, I know thy, verse 19, I know thy works. And then he names a bunch of things. And then at the end he says, and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. All right. So what does that mean? All right. 
the last to be more than the first. Do you have a thought, a theory on that? Yeah, well, it's, it's confusing because it's like, I know your works and your works. And the last is more than the first. But wait, they're both the same thing. They're both the works. So I don't know, I'm probably missing something. There's probably a way to interpret that. If anybody figures that out, let me know and I'll be, I'll be very grateful. But anyway, it's, it's just kind of, it's kind of a confusing passage right there. But he says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed on idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. So this church, it went beyond compromise and it's just, I mean, in full-blown spiritual fornication. So in other words, this church has joined up with false religion. Right? Committing spiritual fornication. This church, unlike the church in Ephesus, who did you know who tested those who said they were apostles and found them to be liars? This church did not do that. It allows this woman Jezebel to speak, and they're listening to what she has to say, and she's bringing in false doctrine. I mean, bringing in wicked practices, and this church is participating in these things. And God gave them space to repent. God's given, but they didn't do it. So this church, it went beyond compromise, committing fornication. It says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Now, this right here, this is a gotcha verse from the pre-trib crowd. Okay, how do we answer this? Because this church is clearly really bad. I mean, these people are committing spiritual fornication, probably not even saved. But the truth is, you can't really commit spiritual fornication unless you are saved. See what I'm saying? You kind of have to be saved in order to commit spiritual fornication. But notice it says that this church though, this one's going to get thrown into great tribulation except they repent. So that would mean if they don't do that, then they won't be thrown into tribulation, right? That's That's what they will do. But here's the thing. Here's, here's what I say to people when they say that. When they go to this verse. Why is this one the tribulation and all the other verses aren't? Think about that. Because, you know, we can say, you know, in the world ye shall have tribulation. Well, that's not talking about the tribulation. Okay, it's fine. You know, we through much tribulation should enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's, that's not talking about the tribulation. Ye shall have tribulation ten days. Well, that's not talking about the tribulation. But then right here, all of a sudden now, it is. Do you all see the inconsistency that they have? The way they like to pick and choose? So, you know, it's like now all of a sudden, every verse that mentions tribulation is talking about the tribulation. You know, why is it that this one is the tribulation and all the other ones aren't? And I'll tell you why. Because this one fits their narrative and the other ones doesn't. That's why. But listen... Do you all realize the Bible never gives any specific period of time the title, the tribulation? Do you all realize that's something the theologians have done? Nowhere in the Bible does it do it. Do that. 
People say, well, you know, Daniel's 70th week, that's, that's tribulation. Oh, really? Show me that. All right? Show me in the book of Daniel where it uses the word tribulation. Alright? You know where we see that? We see it in Matthew 24. And Jesus doesn't title that period of time the tribulation. He just says it's something that's going to be happening during that time. For then shall be great tribulation. He doesn't title it the great tribulation. The tribulation is just something that is going to be happening during that time. And so here's a news flash for these people. You know, tribulation is trouble. Alright? And sometimes we're in it. Sometimes we're not in it. Turn, look at first, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 5. It says, "...which is the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer." Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Y'all see that? Tribulation is for those persecuting the church. Therefore, it's not for us. But listen, tribulation is trouble. So God is going to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Well, if I'm being troubled, I'm in tribulation. Y'all, y'all realize that? that? That's pretty clear. It says, "...and you who are troubled, rest with us when the, Lord, when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe." Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So listen, God is going to recompense tribulation to those who trouble us. Okay? I believe that is God pouring out His wrath on them. Okay? Just because God is, uses the word tribulation as far as what He's going to do to them doesn't mean we don't have any tribulation. Y'all understand that the reason God's wrath is going to be poured on them or God is going to give them tribulation is because they troubled us. They gave us tribulation. Therefore, backing up the idea that the tribulation we are going through is not the wrath of God, but it is the wrath of man or it is the wrath of the devil. The devil is going to give us tribulation through man, through the synagogue of Satan. And then you know what? God is going to recompense tribulation to them. But see, the problem is we've let these theologians put all these titles on things and then now tribulation can only be the wrath of God. No. No, tribulation can be, can be what man does to us and it can be what God does to man. Tribulation just means trouble. And God is recompensing tribulation. Why? Because they troubled us. Or in other words, we went through tribulation because of them. So this is so that verse, it is not a gotcha verse for the pre-tribbers. It just shows how double-minded and inconsistent they are in their theology. If verse 22 proves we're out of here for the tribulation, then why doesn't verse 10 prove that we are here for tribulation for 10 days? Because they will say, well, that's not talking about the tribulation in verse 10. But verse 22 is. Once again, they have no consistency. There is no consistency in their teaching. Verse 23 says, And I will kill her children with death, 
And all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. And I believe when He mentions Him that He which searcheth the reins and the heart, I believe that's a reference to Jeremiah chapter 17. In verse 9, we all know this verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So right there we see that that, I believe that's what Jesus is referring to right there. And Jesus Christ, when He returns, His reward is going to be with Him. And I believe those of us who have been faithful, we're going to be rewarded. Those who have done evil, they're going to be punished. They're going to be, they're going to be judged according to their works. So, uh, verse 24 says, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. So those who are not a part of that wicked doctrine in the church, they would not be cast into that tribulation that Jesus is referring to. Okay? There are, in some churches, they have some evil doctrine, some saved people in there. And you know what they need to do? They need to hold on to the good doctrine that they have. And you know what they need to do? They need to repent. Or they need to come out of those churches. Is what they need to do. And so, verse 26 says, He that overcometh um, and keepeth My words in the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with the rod of iron as the vessels of a potter. And they shall be broken to shivers even as I received My Father. When Jesus Christ returns, He's going to rule the world with the rod of iron. And you know what? We're going to rule with Him. Not with the wet spaghetti noodle. Not with the feather duster. We're going to rule with the rod of iron. What does that mean? I believe the Old Testament moral law is going to be executed during that time. All those laws that the dispensationalists hate so much because they feel like it makes Christians look bad. You know, putting so many people to death. Jesus Christ is going to implement those things in the Millennial Kingdom. So they better start liking those things because they will be a part of the world eventually. And I'm looking forward to that day. So verse 28, He said, Also, the, him that overcometh, I will give him the morning star. What is the morning star? Revelation 22.16 I, Jesus, have sent Mine angel to testify unto you of these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Jesus is the morning star. They're going to get Jesus Christ. So, verse 29, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So listen, there's a lot of things that we see that mentioned in chapter 2 that I believe, you know, for example, that tribulation 10 days. That's something that, that probably already happened. Okay? You can kind of spiritualize that and use symbol, you know, symbolism and stuff like that. And you got to be careful with a lot of stuff. I, I don't really get into doing that. At the end of the day, though, I do believe when we read this chapter, we need to understand He is writing to specific churches. But we are to learn from those things. Okay? And He that hath an ear to hear. That's talking about those who are saved. Those who are spiritual. We are supposed to learn from these things. Just like we're supposed to learn from the mistakes the children of Israel made in the wilderness, those things are written, the Bible says in the New Testament, they are written for our admonition. We're supposed to learn from their mistakes. We are to learn from these churches. Okay? 
we are not these specific churches. Okay? But there can be similarities. We can have some of their good points. We can have some of their bad points. What are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to learn from those things. And one of the things we learn, let's not go committing spiritual fornication and getting involved with false religion. Let's hate bad doctrine. Let's hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Let's hate those things. And let's learn these things. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in the churches. Let's listen to what Jesus said to these churches. And those of us who are spiritual, let's learn from those things. And it's a mistake people often make when they try to... It's a mistake to try to build your timeline on end times events out of something Jesus said specifically for these specific churches in a specific time. I think that's... I think that's very foolish and we're going to get ourselves in trouble with that. But here, this is the reason so many people read Revelation 2 and 3 and start adding works to salvation. I personally believe it is because these people do not have an ear to hear. In other words, these are not a spiritual people. When Jesus said that he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, he often said that because he was saying things that were for those who were spiritual to understand just like he did with the parables. He didn't want the Pharisees to understand it. You know why? The Pharisees had a problem of not believing on Christ. The Pharisees had a problem of wanting to add works to salvation. That was that leaven of the Pharisees. And isn't it interesting that there's people out there today, even Baptists, that people like me say are not saved? Isn't it interesting how just like the Pharisees, they want to add works to salvation in the end times and during the tribulation. And we're going to let people who think you have to add works to salvation in the tribulation tell us about the tribulation. Well, it's right there in chapters 2 and 3. Yeah, for you who are lost, but for us who are saved, we understand that we overcome through Jesus Christ. And you know what? They'll scoff at that. They'll laugh at that. But you know what? That's exactly what the Pharisees did with the words of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because they didn't have ears to hear. They audibly heard Jesus, but they didn't get the spiritual message because they were lost. They had not believed on Christ. And I personally believe when you hear a Ruckmanite or whatever using verses from chapter 2 and 3 to prove to prove Faith plus works in the tribulation, that's just more proof these people are not saved. It's more proof that they do not have ears to hear. And so this message in Revelation is for those who are saved. And if you read the book of Revelation and you fear losing your salvation, it's because you're not saved. That's all there is to it. So what if I do this? What if I do that? Our salvation is not based on what we do it's based on what Jesus Christ already did. And if there is something in the future that we have to do physically in order to keep our salvation, if there is something, Jesus will make sure it happens. Alright? I'm not going to worry about me. I'm going to worry about Him. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ to get me to heaven. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ to keep me saved. And so... Say, so, well, what if I take the mark? All right. Well, then you're just not saved. That's all there is to it. 
Jesus said, hey, if you're really saved, He will not tempt you with more than you're able. I personally believe if they ask me to take the mark, I believe I will have the strength to reject it and to die for that. And you might say, I don't know if I'll have it. Listen, if you're saved, you will have the ability to do that. Jesus promised that. With the temptation, He'll make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So that, that's what the Bible teaches. I'll probably say more about that when we get to the mark of the beast and things like that. But hopefully this was a help to you. And, and hopefully this helped you understand how to interpret chapter 2 and 3. These things are written to specific churches, but we're supposed to learn from them. Just like the things that were written to the Jews, we're supposed to learn from those things. We are supposed, we are supposed to do that if, if you have an ear to hear. So that's Revelation 2. So with that, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. I pray You'll help us to learn from these things, Lord. Help us to uh, understand these things, Lord. And I pray that for those maybe that uh, they, they read this passage and they just struggle with it, Lord, maybe they, they need to be saved, dear God. And I pray if there's one here that's not saved, that You'll save them before it's eternally too late and they'll understand these things. Help everyone to understand. The key to understanding the spiritual is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved first. And Lord, I, I, I thank You for sending Your Son. I thank You for overcoming for us. And I, I pray You'll help us to uh, be encouraged by these things and not let it scare us. In Your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead.